standing for the reading of Scripture, you'll find that in Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, as we continue on in the exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. And we come to chapter 8 now to take up the um, exposition of the chapter properly. This morning, beginning with the first part, verses 1 through 10. So here and attend to the reading of the Holy Scriptures, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven basket, uh, large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Damuthia. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Not only is Jesus the gospel source, and you know what we mean when we say source. He is the place where something comes from. The good news comes from Jesus. It's not an idea about him. It's not a story that we remember like one of our favorite stories from our youth or watching a movie or something. No, we're talking about something that's very real. How is it that we can have good news about knowing who God is, not only as the Creator, but as our Savior? And that good news is in the source of who Jesus Christ is, uniquely the one and only God-man. And also by the incarnation. That word incarnation mean, means come in our human flesh. Coming in our human flesh, Jesus is the perfect and personal God-man. He is God and man in one person. He is uniquely and alone that. No one else ever or ever will be the God-man, only Jesus Christ. And so the good news, the gospel of salvation in this sin-fallen world is also about the supernatural union of Christian believers with Christ. Now that's something that's a challenge to us, this part of the New Covenant gospel about supernatural living union with Christ. It's a holy mystery, but it is revealed and celebrated to us in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this. Well, well, how could you describe or what could you use to tell people about what this living union with Christ is about? And it dawned on me, duh, the Scriptures tell you what the analogy is. The Scriptures give us the analogy of our living union with Christ and therefore our union with one another is like the human body as an example. All the human body is not a big nose. Maybe you've seen cartoon features or whatever where there's a big nose with stick hands and stick legs. But you're not a big nose. You have a nose, but you also have an eye. Now, your nose and your eye are part of your living body. But they're not the same, are they? They're different, 
but they're the same body. They're part of you. And so this is what Scripture is telling us about this wonderful, celebrated mystery of living union with Christ, that we have a living connection with Him. We're not all the same, but we are in the same body. It's really quite wonderful and mysterious. And as a matter of fact, to celebrate that, there are two outward signs and seals of God's promise. They're called covenantal signs and seals. And baptism and the Lord's Supper are outward signs to to give us a, a visible picture of a wonderful mystery. And they're also God's stamp of approval on them to say, this is what this means. And so our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, gives us some description about this that's based on Scripture. I've given you just a couple of uh, excerpts from the uh, uh, confession this morning to help us when we talk about this living union with Christ and how it is celebrated and how He gives us signs and seals of this holy mystery of God's holy secrets about how we are livingly united to Christ and therefore alive and born into the family of God. So the confession starts out in chapter 27 with sacraments. And don't let that word throw you. The word sacraments comes down to us through the Greek language and the Latin language, and it simply means mysteries, holy mysteries. God's holy secrets are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Immediately, coming directly from God, instituted by God, to represent Christ, to to give us a representation and an understanding of who Christ is and His benefits. And to confirm our interest in Him, as also to put a visible difference between those who belong unto the church and the rest of the world, the sin-fallen world. And solemnly, very seriously, to engage, to connect us with them to the service of God in Christ according to His Word. So, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, we're engaged, we're connected to, witnessing to, identifying with, and serving God through Christ in a living way. Like being part of a body, whether we're an ear or an eye or a thumb or a kneecap or whatever it might be in the wonderful mystery of the unity of the body, there are different parts, but it's all one body. And so that's the analogy that Scripture gives us. And then the confession goes on to talk about baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal. It's an outward demonstrated sign, and it is an approval, a stamp of approval from God in His covenant of promise, of the covenant of grace, of ingrafting into Christ. Now, the confession goes on to say more, but I wanted to emphasize this part of the living union with Christ. You know what grafting is, perhaps? if I don't know if you've ever uh, done any gardening, um, but if you take a part of a plant, let's say you want to um, develop a, a, an apple tree, and you take a part of an apple tree and you graft it onto a, another apple tree or a type of tree that's grown, and you wrap it around, and, and that a uh, little piece that you put on there grows into the big tri- uh, uh, stem. It grows together. It engrafts, and it becomes a living connection and unity. Well, that's the idea that's being given here of uh, what baptism represents. Baptism is an outward picture of the promise that God makes, and God has sealed it to say, this is what the Holy Spirit does secretly. He engrafts you into Christ in a living connection. A living union. Now, the Lord's Supper is also a sign and seal of God's covenant of promise and His covenant of grace, of His favor to us in salvation. 
And it's to be observed in the church unto the end of the world for the continual, the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. It sets before us a reminder that Jesus came in a body like ours and that Jesus gave his life blood. He died to pay our sins, guilt, and debt. And so the sealing of all the benefits that come from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to true believers... It's not just outwardly. See, it's not because somebody's baptized outwardly. It's not because somebody takes the Lord's Supper outwardly. It's because they take in faith as a demonstration that God has changed their heart and they're alive in faith to Christ. And they receive all the benefits. God puts his stamp of approval and says, you will lack nothing for life and godliness and the promise of eternity with me. You will lack nothing. There's nothing left out. God has done it all in Jesus. And so it seals all the benefits to true believers to be a bond, to be a superglue, and a pledge, an outward promise from God of communion, of living union with Christ and with each other as members of his mystical body. Yes, it is supernatural. It is a mystery. The world doesn't understand it, and even the analogies that are given to us from the created world are limited in suggesting to us something of far greater reality that we receive by faith and the witness of the Holy Spirit intuitively says to our souls, Amen. If you're a Christian believer this morning and you're hearing of these things, you're saying, I don't understand it all, but Amen, it's so. Yes, it's true. I am alive in Christ. So remember, baptism and the Lord's Supper are public and covenantal communal Christian ordinances Christ commissioned, Christ authorized to be kept and observed by His corporate body, the church. It is important that we are in the visible church. It is important that we are visibly testifying that we are Christians and that we are keeping in public recognition those signs and seals of the holy mysteries and God's holy secrets through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, one of the causes of the resulting spiritual weakness of the visible evangelical churches in our day is an unbalanced emphasis of the personal Jesus individualized as a designer savior. And I want to tell you, the evangelical churches across this land are weak. They've neglected baptism and the Lord's Supper, or they teach falsely about it. They don't keep the balance of Scripture, and they don't emphasize, as we should, our union with Christ and personal connection within the broader body and what it is to be the body of Christ, the church. The emphasis is on personalizing our understanding of Jesus, not in terms that we have mentioned here out of the scriptures talking about our living union with him, but personalizing Jesus as a designer savior. Jesus saves me the way I want to be saved. And very easily that corrupts into just selfishness and egotism. Some people look upon spiritual growth and it really turned it into an egotism of spiritual superiority. There's a lot of twisted things that happen in our flesh and mind when we get away from Holy Scripture. Now, I want you to, to turn in your hymnal to hymn number 415 because I want to reference that hymn in just a moment. If you'll turn to hymn number 415 because I'm trying to make a, a, a very clear point to you here this morning of what's so very important because I want you to be warned I want you to hear and I want it to register with you that the many voices that you hear in the world, even within the evangelical church that is saying about Jesus as Savior and Jesus as your personal Savior, 
is often said without a connection to the fuller teaching of Scripture about what that means. Have you ever heard this lyric? Reach out and touch faith, your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus. Well, that's a, actually a song that was written back at the end of the, I think, eight, uh, 19, uh, 1989, 1990, around that time, by one, a member of a techno band in, in Britain called uh, Depeche Mode. And it became a popular hit. And it's been covered by a number of popular singers from that time on. Reach out and touch faith. Your own personal Jesus. That's what the title of the song became known as. Your own personal Jesus. But the guy who wrote the song said that he got the idea for this when he read a, a, a book by Priscilla Presley about Elvis. And that for him, the idea was just someone who personally cares about you. And evidently, you know, in her sentiments of the book, she expressed care, or maybe Elvis expressed care for others or whatever. Nothing to do with the biblical Jesus. I, I don't know about the book that Priscilla Presley wrote. I'm talking about the fellow who wrote this pop song. And when you hear these words, I mean, you may say, oh, yeah, personal relationship with Jesus. No, that's not what this pop song is about. It goes on to talk about, uh, are you alone by the telephone? Pick up the phone and call Jesus. Well, Jesus could be your mom. Jesus could be your brother. Jesus could be your best friend. And his understanding about caring about one another. So I'm not even saying it's a bad song. I'm saying it's a misleading song. It's not a song about Jesus. Okay? But that's how we have become so shallow. And we need to be warned against this shallowness in terms of, oh, my own personal designer, Jesus. The designer, he's like my therapist. He's like my guru. I can just pick him up. He's like my best friend, my BFF. I'll call him on the prayer phone. No, that's not what Scripture says about our living union with Christ. That's why I had you turn to this hymn, hymn number 415. And while we're not going to sing it this morning, we have sung it before, I want you to follow along with the uh, lyrics of this hymn, the stanzas of this hymn. Pay attention to the difference between your own personal Jesus and what this hymn says about our living union with Christ. It starts out in verse 1, Baptized into your name most holy, O Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I claim a place, though weak and lowly, among your seed, your chosen host, buried with Christ and dead to sin. Your spirit, heir, shall live within. Verse 2, my loving father, me, you've taken, for heir to be your child and heir. My faithful savior, me, you've given, your righteousness, holy life to share. O Holy Spirit, you will be a comforter, guide, and help to me. Stanza three, and I have vowed to fear and love you and to obey you, Lord, alone, because the Holy Spirit moved me. I dared to pledge myself your own, renouncing sin to keep the faith and war with evil unto death. Stanza four, my faithful God, your word fails never. Your covenant surely will abide. Oh, cast me not away forever, should I transgress it on my side. Though I have oft my soul defiled, in love forgive, restore your child. Stanza 5 is at the top of the page. Yes, I am and love most dearly. I offer now, I'm sorry, all I am and love most dearly, I offer now, O Lord, to you. O let me make my vows sincerely. And I may say, uh, and what I say, help me to do. 
Let naught within me, naught I own, serve any will but yours alone. And then stanza six. And never let my purpose falter, O Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but keep me faithful to your altar till you shall call me from my post. So unto you I live and die and praise you evermore on high. Well, I I don't want to dwell on it, but I just want you to pay attention to the difference in the substance of this hymn. While we sing hymns, uh, this hymn uh, comes down to us from several hundred years ago. Does that make it unvaluable? Does that make it boring? Does that make it passe just because it's a few hundred years old? How about the fact that it's based on eternal truths? The timeless truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who cares when it was written? Can we sing it with faith in our hearts and grace and desire to engage with what it says? And can you see that, yes, the substance of that hymn is certainly different from your own personal Jesus, though it may want you to tap your toe and snap your finger, your own personal Jesus, but that's not what we're here to do. We are here to engage solemnly, seriously into the promises of God about our relationship with Him. So we continue on in chapter 8, and all that introduction is connected to our uh, exposition of chapter 8 and verses 1 through 10 this morning. Remember, as we come to chapter 8, we're looking at the gospel paradox, what seems to be a contradiction to the world, but by faith that paradox is resolved for us who are believers. The gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith, faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. Faith in progressive revelation recorded in the Holy Scripture. Faith in predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel. And faith in the promised gospel which consummates to the glory of God. All those things are before us and suggested in chapter 8 and more fully revealed uh, through the balance of Scripture. We read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8 this morning. We have Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude of 4,000 plus people. Matthew tells us there were not only 4,000 men, but there were women and children there also. But this was in Gentile territory, and it further demonstrates God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. Uh, Remember, the feeding of the 5,000 had been uh, among mainly Jewish people uh, in a different location, north of where Jesus is now, up on the the north side, the the north and northwest of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus is down in the southeast below the Sea of Galilee in a predominantly Gentile area of ten cities called Decapolis. Those ten cities were more like ten frontier towns that were spread out in that region. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, In those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Those days follows chapter 7 where we've just ended up. While Jesus was still in the region of Decapolis, southeast, as I said, of the Sea of Galilee and uh, these uh, spread out frontier towns, this was predominantly a Gentile area, an area of those who did not uh, grow up in the Jewish traditions. And that's important. We come to verses 1 through 3. Let's go on with verse 2. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So 
We have Jesus not only showing compassion in as many works of mercy that he did and healing and caring about people as the multitudes continued to flock to him. And we talked about how there's not even recorded for us the extent. It's just uh, suggested to us over and over. Jesus was constantly flocked by multitudes of people. Here we're told uh, of 4,000 plus. I mean, maybe there were, uh, you know, 8,000, 12,000 people altogether. As elsewhere we pointed out, these were big multitudes of people that were gathered together following Jesus. And Jesus had compassion on them, not only by his works, but he also expressed his words of sympathy and pity about their human condition concerning all kinds of needs for the body, soul, and spirit. Isn't that comforting to know that Jesus cares about us in body, soul, and spirit? Not these false teachings that somehow uh, we're to... um, hate the flesh or hate the body or we've got to get out of the body that the only real reality is is, is spirit in the realm of the idea in the realm of the mind not so with Jesus Jesus cares about how and who we are created in the image of God with body, soul, and spirit and so here he expresses that as one of the times when he gives words to his care he says I have compassion on them my sympathy and my pity are extended to them For this particular reason, they're out here with me these many days, three days. They don't have enough food to eat. They've got a long way to go back home. And some of them may faint on the way. How are they going to take care of one another? We're out here in this remote location. There's not a McDonald's or a Burger King or any um, taco stand close by. So here's another great crowd of people gathered to Jesus in a remote area out in the country, and they they come to Jesus for an impromptu spiritual retreat. They didn't plan to be there three days, but they did. They continued with Jesus three days, but they didn't plan, so they didn't bring food for three days. Although there were a few lunch bags, because there were a few uh, loaves of bread and a few fish that had been gathered up, but the people just simply didn't know that they were going to be following Jesus that long, and they stuck with Jesus. It was more desirable for them to be there. Jesus would teach and move among them and heal and care for them during the day. I don't know how long it went into the night, but they would just sleep on the ground, gather together, and the next day it's like, if Jesus is here, we're going to stay here too. And that went on for three days. An impromptu spiritual retreat. But these Gentile people came from far and wide across the frontier region. They, they inconvenienced themselves. It wasn't like going next door. They may have walked for some many miles across this frontier region. because You know why? They heard the praise trail. They were on the praise trail. They heard what Jesus had been doing. Go back to the end of chapter 7 when Jesus was saying to the people, don't spread it so far and wide. Don't. But they couldn't contain themselves. They started talking about what Jesus had done. and the, the, He's done all things well. He heals people. He cares for people. He restores people. He teaches us the way of God. He's not like the, the false religions. And people not only out of Jewish uh, heritage and tradition, but people who were Gentiles, like a, a Greek Syrophoenician woman, had come to recognize and by the witness of the Spirit sought Jesus out as Savior, leaving all the false beliefs behind because she was made enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And others whom Jesus restored and saved, and the Word got out, and the praise trail developed as people flocked to Jesus. And as we said, in this instance, there could have been, you know, between four and 10,000 people who had gathered together. There were 4,000 men plus women and children. They too came out seeking the Lord Jesus. Jesus would not dismiss 
or abandon them to hunger and thirst there in the, the wilderness, knowing they would be exhausted if they tried to go back home. We don't know how life-threatening the situation may have been. We don't know what ages the people were, but certainly maybe little babies or uh, older people needed sustenance. Even maybe younger people could make the trek. Maybe they could go a day or so and, and make it home. But Jesus has compassion. He knows the condition. How about so many people he healed? The people he healed were made restored whole. But there were still a wide range of ages and conditions of people. They were far away from home and they had nothing to eat. Can you imagine going for three days without really having that much to eat? What if your brown bag that you take to school or to work for your lunch, what if they had to last you three days? That might be a bit of a challenge. And so Jesus has compassion on him. He cares about this. We don't know to what extent the trying to go back would be life-threatening, but whatever it is, Jesus cares about this. It's a, it's a tremendous demonstration to us. Remember, Jesus had been in the wilderness suffering from effects of hunger and thirst to his body, soul, and spirit in a spiritual showdown with the devil. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 1 of Mark. He went out into the wilderness. He went on an assault mission against the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're told that he was hungry and thirsty. And I'm going to quote for you a moment uh, a passage from Hebrews chapter 2 that talks about he didn't come to give aid to angels. Do you know in the wilderness after the temptation and after he defeated the devil and he was hungry and he was thirsty? Who came to him? Angels of God came and ministered to him because in his body, soul, and spirit, a real human being, but the God-man, Jesus was really hungry. He was really thirsty. His body was suffering the effects of that, just like you and I would if we got exhausted. But he would not misuse his divine powers. And so an angel from God came and ministered to him. But we read in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus does not give aid to angels. Rather, he gives aid and help to the seed of Abraham. You know what the seed of Abraham means? It means people who are like Abraham who believe and trust the promises of God. So we, we hear the seed of Abraham and we misread that in terms of those who have descended from Abraham in a particular bloodline. And Jesus said, look, your bloodline means nothing. Are you of the faith of Abraham? That's who the true seed of Abraham are. People who are of the faith of Abraham, who trust God for his promises. And Jesus came to give aid to those who trust God like Abraham did. Therefore, in all things, even in compassion about people's being out in the wilderness, having listened to him teaching and preaching and being among them for three days, not having enough to eat or drink and risk physical exhaustion, in all things, he is to be made like us, his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God. He is our one mediator between God and man because he is the God-man. Therefore, he is the bridge. He's the one and only as the source of the good news who can connect us in living connection with God, our creator. And how does he do that? As a priest, as a mediator, he is able to make propitiation. That's a big word that means this, wrath-removing sacrifice. Only Jesus can remove the wrath of God, holy and just, against our sin's guilt. We're guilty. There's no question about it. Don't play mind games. You're guilty before God. But 
Jesus removes the wrath of God. You know, the root word of this word propitiation, I really love it. It means to change your frowny face into a smiley face. I'm not being trivial. I'm telling you what the root word of From a mean, angry face, rightly so, to a happy face. I, I am not ashamed to be that simplistic. To ask you, do you know through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that God is looking upon you with a smiley face. That's what, that's what the gospel is. That's why we're to celebrate. That's why we're to rejoice. That's why we're to have a gospel party. So Jesus makes propitiation for the sins of the people. He had no sin, but he took sin's guilt upon himself that he might remove the wrath of God because he suffered being tempted. He also was able to to aid and to care for those who are tempted. He knows how we're tempted. He knows our weaknesses. He knows us in body, soul, and spirit because He is one of us in body, soul, and spirit. And yet He is unlike us in that He didn't have guilt of sin. And so it's a wonderful mystery that God reveals to us. And as Christian ministers and as believers in the New Covenant Church, we too are to give and to receive words and works of compassion, caring for the whole body of a person in the whole body of Christ. Do you think of one another in whole terms as a body, soul, and spirit? To think of one another personally? I know you personally. I know your name. I know who you are. You're a person. But you're also a person that I'm livingly connected with in the body of Christ. There are others in the visible churches that represent the invisible church and the body of Christ all around. I don't have as much connection with them. I know it's a wonderful mystery in God, but here God has put us together in Christ to know one another personally and to care about one another's body, soul, and spirit. That's why we pray in our public prayers for the needs and the cares that that God would aid those whom we love, that we're connected with in the body of Christ. And so when the application of Scripture So much of Scripture is offered as an individualized designer Christian identity without the larger connection to the invisible church made visible. Then I think we, like the pre-resurrection disciples, are stumbling over realizing our better identity in Christ. Do you have this temptation? Do you have this struggle that when you read scripture or even when scripture is preached and expounded have you ever noticed how much of it is within the context of the body of Christ in our living union with Christ and with one another that passage out of Colossians this morning that we used in our confession and in our assurance of forgiveness talks about our admonishing one another and encouraging one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs do you know that that is within the context of the gathered church of the church invisible made visible in our caring for one another, in our encouraging, in our uh, building and edifying one another up. That's why I gave you an example of a hymn this morning that talks about our connection, our living union with Christ. And I want to say it again. I want to warn you against those confused voices that we hear even within the evangelical church that are saying that we look upon our Christian life and we take Scripture to talk about our being designed as a better me. Oh, 
to be a better you. No, that's not what the scriptures address. It's not about you being a better you. It's about you being a better Christian in your union with Christ. You see, there's a subtle difference, but it's huge. Those who want this designer Christian identity, I already mentioned to you how that can be masking sin, really. And it's often said in in reference to being a better you. I want you to lose that. I want you to do away with that kind of talk about being a better you. You don't need to be a better you. You need to be a better Christian. What it is to be living the united to Christ and to live in Christ. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the kind of being a better Christian that we must grow up into. And not this individualized designer identity that's been overlaid onto this notion of Christian life and Christian growth. I hope you'll think about that. I hope you'll give that consideration. Look on, if you will, at verses 4 through 9. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them uh, before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. So here, once again, Jesus proved the faith of his disciples. And I know the 12 are included in this, and maybe primarily included, but we do need to understand that there was a broader group of disciples that did follow Jesus from which Jesus uh, chose the 12. But Jesus once again proves the faith of these disciples by reiterating his messianic identity to be more than a prophet with occasional visitations of divine presence and powers. This is the pre-resurrection time of of these disciples and the apostles being with Jesus. And, And it was still being revealed to them who Jesus is as the God man as the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king. And there were some bridges they had to overcome. There were some uh, connections. Remember we talked about how Jesus said, you don't understand, you don't connect it, you don't take note of these things. There was still some growing in knowledge that they needed to have as well in putting together that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus wasn't born from a priestly line. So it had to be revealed to them that Jesus was priest by a special oath and appointment of God likened unto Melchizedek of old. Well, these were things they were having to grow into. Uh, There seemed to be a struggle with them recognizing, confessing that Jesus is Messiah, but then looking upon him, for instance, in his prophetic role, and, and only thinking of his having visitations of divine power and presence, rather than his being the divine presence and power. Among them. That's going to come. It even comes in this chapter, and then it is this uh, wonderfully, astoundingly demonstrated in chapter 9. But they are growing up to that. Progressive revelation terminating in who Jesus is. That, that's what's going on and what we need to recognize and how we need to grow to know more and more 
that Jesus is all in all and what it means that He's prophet, priest, and king and about the holy mystery of our union, living union with Him. So, there are those who question the validity of this episode of the feeding of the 4,000 plus because it's so similar to the feeding of the 5,000 plus back in chapter 6. And when I say it's so similar, it's really not. (laughs) If you look at it very closely, I think it's to be more foolish than the little faith disciples as well as disregarding Jesus' other repeated miracles such as his repeated healing of the lame. How many lame people did Jesus heal? Well, we're not even given a number. We're just told over and over about his healing lame people. How about those who were diseased or sick? Over and over, Jesus repeated the same miracles of healing people who were sick, people who had diseases. How many times did Jesus heal blind people? We don't have a record. We don't have a count of how many blind people Jesus healed. We just have a record of some of the particular ones that he healed. And how about raising the dead? We have several accounts of Jesus raising the dead. So Jesus repeated his miracles and his works and his teachings over and over. I don't see how we can miss that. But also, there are differences between the account of the feeding of the 5,000 plus and the account here of feeding the 4,000 plus. There are explicit differences and they offer important contrast and historical context for Jesus' messianic self-identification. These two incidents are not the same. It's just that Jesus did a similar thing. He fed people miraculously. There were not the exact same number. There, There was a different location. There was a different number of people. They were a different people. Predominantly Jews, predominantly Gentiles. Uh, they were... They were fed by a different number of loaves and of fish. And there was a different number of leftovers. It's even suggested that it's significant in the symbolic use of biblical numerology. That there, with the feeding of the 5,000 plus, there were five loaves and two fish that are identified for us. And there were 12 lunch baskets full of leftovers. Here in this account of the feeding of the 4,000 plus, there are seven loaves and a few fish. And there are seven hamper baskets. Hamper baskets that were big enough, according to Acts, where Paul was put in one and let down over a wall. Hamper baskets that were big enough to hold a person. Whereas in the feeding of the 5,000 plus, there were lunch baskets. That's the difference that Scripture makes out here. and says, look, these two accounts are very different, even though they follow a similar Activity. Jesus fed a multitude of people miraculously, but they are significantly different. Uh, as a matter of fact, here among uh, the G- predominantly Gentile group of people, we find that Jesus offered separate prayers over the bread and the fish. And, and there's a difference between the cultural expression and the, the uh, typical type of uh, prayers for meals that were offered in was the tradition of the Jews, and what Jesus here does among these predominantly um, Gentile people that didn't have that tradition, he prays separately over the, fi- over the bread and the fish. Is that significant? Well, it's different. How, I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but I do think that it shows Jesus was connected and knew about the different practices and the, the non-moral kinds of um, traditions that people had. And he was comfortable with that. It's like the Apostle Paul said. Look, when I, I'm among those who 
have certain restrictions and concerns, even among Jewish tradition and things that are uh, not that are secondary, that are not issues of theology or morality, then I can be like a Jew. I'll just eat kosher food, you know. But when I'm with the Gentiles and they enjoy singing and dancing around the table and they have these goat chops that came from the marketplace, and okay, so the, 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 the butcher is uh, a pagan and he offered these uh, goat chops to Zeus before he sold them. I don't believe in Zeus, but I do like goat chops. So when I'm with the Gentiles and they don't have a, uh, a tradition, this is not something that's immoral, it's not something that is a violation of conscience for them, then I'll enjoy that. Well, Jesus is showing us here. He accommodated some of the concerns and cultural expressions of different peoples without violating any moral principles or truths, without sinning. It's just food. And so Jesus is telling us, look, you going to let those things become a barrier to you to reaching people with the gospel? Don't do it. That's, the context is significant here. So as Christian ministers and believers in the New Covenant Church, when is the last time we've missed a meal or been personally inconvenienced to give more attention to Jesus' presence and teaching? I'm not saying that as a guilt trip. I'm not trying to guilt you into that. I'm just saying the people stayed with Jesus three days because they were being filled and they were connected with Him and they didn't want to leave. I'm saying, you know, when is the last time? Maybe somebody called you up and you needed to help someone and you had to skip a meal. Well, it's my lunch time. It's my lunch break. But you know what? I'll talk to you. I'm not even going to tell them. I'll just say, yeah, I can talk to you. Because you were ministering in the name of Christ. When's the last time you were really inconvenienced? <laughs> I mean this as a joke. No one's ever said to me, Preacher, could you preach a little longer? You can laugh. It's funny. But really, when are we, when are we personally inconvenienced out of loving and serving and spending time with the Lord Jesus? How comfortable are you with different Christian cultural practices in social settings. I'm not talking about formal worship. I have very strong convictions and beliefs about what God has ordained in terms of, of public worship. And I'm not, not talking about uh, necessarily following a particular order of service, but things like, for instance, this morning. I have a very strong conviction about the need for public confession and to hear publicly God's promised forgiveness. I think that is a, a benefit and a, a, a valuable part of the public worship of God. I think baptism and the Lord's Supper are absolutely indispensable. If we're going to worship God rightly according to His Word, then we must administer Trinitarian baptism and we must observe the Lord's Supper as covenantal signs and seals. And that's within God's hand. We haven't had a baptism here in quite some time. I, I heard over that. I've said before, I mean, I say it publicly, I wish I could do more baptisms than funerals. But we serve God, and we serve God in His purpose and according to His will. And so, how comfortable are we about these non-worship things that are differences in cultural practices among Christians? Seriously, would you let food get in the way of ministering? In the name of Christ with fellow believers? Well, I don't eat that kind of food. 
Why can't you just shut your mouth and say, oh, that's interesting. No, I'm, I've had enough. <laughs> you can be polite. But you don't let something like food stand in the way. How about the fact that people wear different kinds of clothes and, and like different kinds of styles? I mean, you're going to let that stand in the way of they don't dress the way I dress? And we're not talking about moral principles of, of um, you know, being uh, careful and being uh, dressing in a way that is um, not immoral. And I'm not talking about the amount of clothes we wear. I'm talking about the, wear, the way we clothe ourselves and wear our clothes and so forth. And Scripture talks about that. But it says, look, it doesn't, doesn't matter about the style of clothes you wear. As long as you're modest, who cares? You know, some have traditions of different things. Paul talked about that in terms of the veil for women. Some people have a tradition of the wearing the veil and, veil and some don't. It's not an essential. People have tried to make that an essential, but it's not. You're missing the point of Scripture there. Paul said you don't turn the Lord's Supper into a dinner party where you gorge yourself and even some were getting drunk. The Lord's Supper is not a dinner party. You want to have a dinner party? Have a dinner party at your house. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And I think these things get very uncomfortable for us when we talk about different expressions of cultural comfort. And when we have to get out of our comfort zone to love others in the body of Christ more than our own self-imposed rituals and rules. Well, that's not the way I do it. I don't cook that way. Who cares how you cook? In your house, you cook the way you want to. But if a Christian brother and sister invites you over and they don't cook the way you cook, just be thankful. <laughs> don't let trivial food stuff get in the way of loving one another in the body of Christ. I mean, can we go on about so many other things that separate us, that are used of the devil to divide us, rather than recognizing and championing and celebrating and putting as a priority our union in Christ with one another, what it means to be livingly united to him and to one another. So let me ask you this. How often has Jesus had to repeat and reiterate to us that he is our only Savior? That he is not only our Savior, but that he's the Savior of the world. Uh, getting back to this theme about it's not just your own personal Jesus and, and you're being your designer self. Jesus is your designer Savior. He's like your life coach. He's like your therapist. He's like your guru. No, that's not what Scripture says. He's your Savior. But he's not only your Savior, he's the Savior of the world. How often does Jesus have to repeat that to us? It's not just about you. Well, I have a suggestion. How about every Lord's Day? I guess you may have heard that this morning. It's not just about you. <laughs> it's not about you being your best designer Christian self. It's about who you are in Christ, alive in union with Christ. It's not about you're outdoing the world. Oh, I can dress better than the world. I can live better than the world. I can uh, perform better than the world. I can do all these things better than the world because I'm a Christian. I want to suggest something to you. What Jesus said, can you suffer differently than the world? Well, wait a minute. That's not in my designer Christian portfolio. Sorry. 
I don't think that's in there. You can suffer better than the world. Mm. So you see, there are those things that Scripture identifies for us and says are the priority in our living union with Christ and our loving compassion for one another. And so I do want to ask you again, how often does Jesus need to repeat that He's not just your Savior, He's the Savior of the world? And beloved, I believe you need to hear that like I need to hear it. And I believe every Lord's Day, it may not be expressed in exactly those words verbatim, but that is what is behind our public worship and our meeting together and our coming together with people that in the regular walk of life we might never come in contact with. How would I know and love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ were it not in the body of Christ? We'd pass on the road, we'd pass in the grocery store, we'd bat at the mall and never recognize or know one another. But there are many like me and there are many like you. Yet God has brought us together to know one another personally and to be livingly united in Christ and to confess together to ourselves and to the world that Jesus is not just my Savior, my personal Savior, my personal Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. Have you stopped believing that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Have you stopped believing that Jesus will save people? Have you stopped believing that Jesus is adding to His church daily those who should be saved? Just because you can't see it with your eyes? You're called to faith. Living union with Christ in His body and mystery of the invisible church that connects us with others we don't even know their name. Somebody wrote a hymn hundreds of years ago. Come thou almighty King. Lining out the praise of the Holy Trinity. We don't know who wrote that. God knows who wrote it and we keep singing it to the glory of God. And so, don't despair in coming into the public worship of God. Don't look around with the eyes of your flesh and doubt, you know, Jesus is my personal Savior, but I don't know if anybody else is saved. No, stop thinking that way. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this feeding of this multitude further reveals the paradox of the gospel in the world. What looks to be a contradiction in faith is dissolved into the glory of God. Jesus saves all kinds of people. And he repeats to us over and over again, don't forget it, I'm your Savior, just like I'm the Savior of all whom the Father has given me. Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's integral to the proclamation of the gospel. And it's something that should thrill us. We'll go on picking up with verse 10. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanthua, however you pronounce that. And I'll I'll figure it out by next week. Uh, We'll continue on in the exposition of chapter 8. Let us turn this morning.